the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. Now, I have to tell you, I'm just a little bit confused today. We had a conversation yesterday with Joel Rosenberg. He'll be my guest for a full hour. His latest book, Without Warning, is the final in the three-series trilogy that he's just completed. Um, so we had that conversation yesterday. And then earlier today, I had an opportunity to speak with uh, Carol Ewing, and uh, who's a preschool teacher, and Andrea uh, Gerke, who is the youth director and director of Christian education at Pilgrim Lutheran Church, to talk about Pilgrim Lutheran Christian School, equipping children for life. So we had that conversation earlier today. So it's just a little, who's on first, I guess, is the question that comes to mind. Anyway, we'll be sharing those conversations with you today. Joel Rosenberg will uh, join us, at least in real time. Uh, at 4.30, and then um, the Pilgrim Lutheran Christian School folks will join us at 5.30. So listen up for those conversations. Looking forward to sharing them with you. Well, much in the news today, Susan Rice is uh, sought intelligence, apparently, on the Trump team. Now, some are suggesting that, well, that's a distraction. Seems to me that um, Washington can do more than one thing at a time, at least one would hope. So I hope this would be taken as seriously as other investigations that are also very serious. But from the Washington Examiner, they point out that the National Security Council has uncovered computer logs that detail the instances former National Security Advisor Susan Rice requested and reviewed records that included President Trump and his campaign staffers' names in intelligence reports from July through January, according to a report published on Monday. Now, the interesting thing is there's no reason for the National Security Advisor to request specific information on uh, those who are inadvertently identified through these um, intelligence um, uh, gathering efforts. Uh, So this is peculiar in and of itself. And now there's another member of the team that's being implicated as well. So we don't know where this will go. It may be perfectly uh, innocent. We hope that it will be taken seriously enough so that a, a conclusion can be drawn based on the evidence rather than what one side hopes is revealed about the other. And that seems to be at the core of much of the investigating that's going on right now. Uh, both sides are absolutely certain that the other has uh, created has uh, been involved in rather some tremendous offense without necessarily looking at evidence, whether that confirms it or not. My hope is that we get to the bottom of uh, anything that is nefarious, whether that involves the Russians or the previous administration, whatever the investigation is, that we would seek the truth, find it, exonerate whoever is um, is worthy of uh, being declared innocent and move forward. Another story in Investor Business Daily notes that evidence is growing that the Obama administration had an actual spying program on its domestic political opponents, namely the Trump campaign. And if so, it was more than just wrong. It was a crime. Now, again, what that information was used for, what 
what reason uh, the uh, names of in the re- the intelligence reports of American citizens was requested. All of that will have a tremendous paper trail. So it shouldn't remain a mystery forever if the investigation moves forward in a nonpartisan way that's designed to get to the truth and move forward. David French uh, cautions in the National Review that there's much less to the actual text of the report than the abundance of all caps tweets would suggest. So balance your expectations. Uh, Meanwhile, Hugh Hewitt, he explains, while it may be legal, it's unusual and leads to a series of important questions that we hope will be answered. And finally, from the Wall Street Journal, unmasking does occur, but it is typically done by intelligence and law enforcement officials engaged in anti-terror or espionage investigations. Ms. Rice would have had no obvious need to unmask Trump campaign officials other than political curiosity. So that investigation will move forward. Let's hope it uh, moves forward uh, as fairly as possible. And I hope that for other investigations as well. Now, the full Senate is expected to vote on the confirmation of Neil Gorsuch, Judge Gorsuch, later this week. Uh, Since his nomination, uh, senators on the Democrat side have been imposing the same litmus test that Hillary Clinton announced during last year's presidential campaign she would use for a Supreme Court justice. Yet no past justice, including recent liberal icons, would pass these same litmus tests that have recently uh, been decided upon to apply to Supreme Court nominees. In fact, some of the objections raised were, well, Gorsuch was unwilling to to offer some specific answers to questions that no prospective Supreme Court justice would answer. And in fact, uh, the last two explicitly made it clear that it would be entirely inappropriate to address those questions specifically because cases uh, that would fall in those categories would likely come before them. It was uh, championed as the right thing to say then, now not so much. Uh, says, um, uh, uh, what was it, uh, Hillary Clinton uh, back in the day. I have a bunch of litmus tests for the Supreme Court. She admitted during the presidential debate she proceeded to emphasize overturning the court's precedent of Citizen United versus Federal Election Commission and upholding the decisions that declare abortion and same-sex marriage to be constitutional rights. In fact, she added, regarding the latter issue, we have to go further and to end discrimination against the LGBT community, which, given how much uh, Obergfell and Hodges already transformed constitutional law, leaves room for little besides judicially imposed sanctions against believers in traditional a definition of marriage. Well, the election may be over, but it's clear that numerous Democrat senators' statements during the uh, Senate's consideration of Gorsuch uh, that they retain these same litmus tests. Now, this uh, this reflects a short-sighted vision of acceptability for the Supreme Court and may uh, be changing the landscape of the advice and consent role given to the Senate by the Constitution forever moving forward, in addition to other elements that may be changed moving forward as well. For example, Uh, If, in fact, the uh, filibuster is attempted on a partisan basis and the so-called nuclear option is applied on a partisan basis, we'll continue to follow the story. We're expecting that as early as Thursday, they could take up the vote on the full Senate. It will take some time for the senators to uh, make their statements during that process. And if there's a filibuster and they apply the two um, uh, the two speech rule that will compress the time somewhat with a vote expected sometime on Friday. So we'll follow that story if and as it unfolds, and it is expected to do just that. Now, we're going to take a break here in just a moment, but I want to remind you that we have an hour-long conversation with Joel Rosenberg. He'll be joining us to talk about Without Warning, his latest book. It is the final in the trilogy that 
uh, has uh, fascinated. It's a political thriller that's fascinated readers uh, over the last two years, um, without warning being the conclusion. We'll talk not only about that, but what's next with Joel Rosenberg. So stick around for that. Also, we're going to talk later in the program with uh, Carol Ewing, preschool teacher, and Andrea uh, Gerlich. She's the, or Gerke, rather. She's the youth director and director of Christian education at Pilgrim Lutheran Church, which is um, the sponsoring church of Pilgrim Lutheran Christian School. They're equipping children for life. We're going to talk about what they do and how they do it. I think you'll be encouraged uh, to hear about um, uh, this Christian school and our effort to provide you some insight into the schools in the Portland metro area. By the way, you can go to our listener savings page for more information and a link to Pilgrim Lutheran Christian School and other schools we've been talking about here on the program. By the way, we have uh, North Clackamas Christian School. We'll be talking with the... Um, Uh, administrator there tomorrow. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Joel Rosenberg will join us later this hour, for a full hour, in fact, without warning his latest novel. Don't often do novels, but uh, when Joel Rosenberg writes one, because they so often mirror what's going on in the world and forecast events. And I hope in this case that's not the case. But nonetheless, uh, we talk with Joel Rosenberg. Well, on Monday, the House of Representatives followed uh, an action um, uh, that was undertaken by the Senate last week. They voted to disapprove a Federal Communications Commission rule on Internet privacy. Now, I've been scratching my head a little bit trying to understand what this is about. Um, What they're saying is that there's been a double standard for broadband providers that – uh, the FCC imposed, uh, and this eliminates that double standard. What Google and Facebook have been allowed to do, now broadband providers will be allowed to do as well. Well, the 400-page order has been rushed to completion by the Obama-appointed FCC chairman Tom Wheeler in October on a 30, or rather three-to-two party line vote. Among other things, it established a, a set of online privacy rules for Internet service providers like Verizon and AT&T that differ substantially from the rules governing other major Internet firms like Amazon and Google. Now, Congress was correct to reject the different rules as anti-consumer, anti-competition, and anti-internet. Uh, the congressional action has led many to conclude that the sky is falling in the online privacy world, naturally causing many consumers to worry about protecting their online information, which, by the way, is all over the place already anyway. And this is a rule that hasn't even, uh, the new rule hadn't even been imposed yet. But in reality, little will have changed if the disapproval is signed by the president and these rules are rescinded. Most online firms, in fact, are covered by longstanding rules crafted by the Federal Trade Commission, which is more appropriately the place uh, where these should have been addressed, as were broadband providers until three years ago. Well, the next step for Congress should now be to restore the FTC's authority over these uh, these firms rather than the FCC and removing them, the FCC, from the process and putting all firms under the more sensible privacy rules that other firms follow. Well, no one, of course, actually likes the idea of anyone looking at data on their personal Internet use, such as their browsing history or geographic location. But many also like the benefits of such shared data, such as making Internet shopping easier, though um, uh, targeted advertising or by providing alternative revenue streams to keep consumer fees low. 
And some firms even offer explicit discounts for consumers that share their data. Now, you have the option of opting out, which has always been the case. Well, the recent FCC rule being rescinded conflicts with longstanding policies on online privacy, uh, privacy rather, long enforced by the Federal Trade Commission, which is the agency that normally deals with such issues. Well, until recently, the FTC rules, which um, use an opt-out method under which non-sensitive data may be shared unless consumers specifically object, Uh, applied equally to all Internet firms, Internet service providers included. Well, this changed in 2015 with the FCC's decision to reclassify Internet service providers as common carriers under the Communications Act. Well, the reclassifications was made in order to give itself legal authority to impose so-called net neutrality rules uh, on uh, Internet service providers. But the seemingly arcane change had... Uh, anyone had another consequence, rather. It removed the Internet service providers from FTC oversight on their online privacy practices. So the FCC sort of wrested authority from the FTC, and they then moved into the regulatory vacuum that it had itself created, producing its own substantially different rules for the group of Internet firms over which it now had authority. Well, the result was a double-headed uh, privacy regime for Internet firms, one for those under the FCC's purview and another less restrictive for everybody else. Well, that may be a benefit if you are in the second camp, especially since several of your biggest competitors will have been handicapped. But it's not a good uh, so good, rather, for everybody else. Unfortunately, Congress has seen uh, through the uh, the FCC gambit and they've disapproved the rule. President Trump should move quickly to sign the bill into law, which apparently he will. It will be uh, given back to the Federal Trade Commission where it had been. Uh, before. It uh, shouldn't end there, however. Congress should also adopt legislation to eliminate the Federal Communications Commission's self-made uh, jurisdiction over the matter and charge the FTC with enforcing clear and reasonable guidelines for protecting consumer privacy rights on the, rev, uh, on the web that are consistent across the board. So that is uh, apparently what Congress is attempting at this point to do. In other news, the NCAA on Tuesday lifted its boycott of North Carolina as a destination to host championship games less than a week after the state lawmakers reached a compromise to repeal the transgender bathroom law. Now, compromise, I'm not sure that's the right word to apply, but nonetheless, we are actively determining site selections, and this new law has minimally achieved a situation where we believe the NC2A championships may be conducted in a non-discriminatory environment, the sports league said in a statement. If we find that our expectations of a discrimination-free environment are not met, we will not hesitate to take uh, necessary actions at any time, end quote. Well, the NC2A pulled seven championships games out of North Carolina after it enacted HB2, which regulated public restrooms, locker rooms, and shower facilities on the basis of one's biological sex. Now, a minute ago, that would have seemed perfectly reasonable, but however, now, a minute later, not so much. Uh, That law was repealed by the North Carolina legislature last week, and a new bill, HB 142, um, was signed into law by the Democrat Governor Roy Cooper in uh, on Friday. Now, this new law places a three-year moratorium on local ordinances regulating public accommodations. So it has stripped localities from determining what rules will apply in their geographic areas. The NT, uh, NCAA says the new uh, law is far from perfect, but meets the minimal NC2A requirements to allow North Carolina to host championship games again. 
Well, the NC2A's decision to backtrack on their vow uh, to the LGBT community players, uh, employees and fans is deeply disappointing, the gay rights community said. Apparently it wasn't enough for them. The president of the Human Rights Campaign, which spearheaded the boycott, said after drawing a line in the sand and calling for repeal of HB2, the NC2A simply let North Carolina lawmakers off the hook. Um, Completely disregarding what the people of North Carolina may have wanted, what localities may choose to do. HB 142 continues uh, the same discriminatory scheme put forward by HB 2, those critics uh, went on to say. Well, North Carolina's top two Republican lawmakers, the Senate President Phil Berger and House Speaker Tim Moore, uh, worked with uh, Mr. Cooper to roll back HB 2 before the NC2 determined uh, host locations for championships from 2018 to 2022. Um, The Collegiate Sports League had given the state an ultimatum to repeal the law or lose out on the chance to host any championship games over that span. They decided the championship games were more important than any safety concerns that their constituents uh, may have had, um, announcing that uh, we are pleased with the NC2A's decision and acknowledge our compromise legislation restores the state to a landscape similar to other jurisdictions presently hosting NC2A championships uh, Mr. Berger and Mr. Moore said in a joint statement. So they have gained the whole world. Let's just hope they haven't sacrificed too much in that um, in that process. One can only hope and pray. Target is having some difficulty as there are uh, individuals who are exploiting uh, their, well, their open uh, decision on who goes where. I think most people would agree that they're not concerned about a man who believes himself to be a woman coming into the restroom. Although when you're talking about a locker room or or a shower, that's a different story. But there are those who would exploit the law as has been warned, and that's happening in targets around the country as well. Let's hope that is not the case uh, in North Carolina over the next three years where this compromise has been imposed for the sake of uh, gaining um, status and money for the state. I want to mention that if you are uh, thinking about or have ever thought you would love to experience Israel, I want to remind you there is an opportunity that KPDQ, Salem Media, and Genesis Tours is offering for KPDQ listeners and Christian radio listeners all across the country. Now, in November, Experience Israel is offering a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to travel to Israel, and it falls during a time when they're celebrating the 50th anniversary of Jerusalem's reunification since the 1960s. Six Days War. Now, Experience Israel, Salem Media Group, and Pastor Sean Thornton are inviting you to join them on a 10-day inspirational journey to the Holy Land. Uh, Pastor Sean Thornton uh, is uh, going to be the speaker on this unforgettable and timely journey to the land of Israel during this anniversary. You can tour uh, the uh, faith-oriented and Bible-based 10-day journey that will offer you firsthand insights into Israel's fascinating past, its miraculous present, and promising future, while introducing you to its rich and spiritual and biblical heritage. One of the things I appreciate about Genesis Tours is that they arrange opportunities to hear from Um, political leaders, spiritual leaders, and others in the nation of Israel. I recall the last two times I traveled to Israel with uh, Genesis, we had an opportunity to worship with Messianic believers, some Muslim background believers in a service in which we heard their testimonies and what God is doing. We had opportunities to hear from Ethiopian Jews 
who are making a difference in sharing their faith in the uh, the military, for example. And to get a perspective on the ground in Israel of what God is doing is just fascinating. Well, on this 10-day journey, you're going to explore sites of miracles and parables throughout the Galilee and Jerusalem, worship at the Mount of Beatitudes and Mount of Olives, tour the Golan Heights, Israel's northern borders, visit uh, modern Tel Aviv, and so much more. Caesarea on the Mediterranean, Masada, the Dead Sea. You can go to kpdq.com for all the important details. I would encourage you to do just that. This may be your year. This may be your opportunity. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, my conversation with Joel Rosenberg. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. As he prepares to deliver the State of the Union address, the President of the United States is convinced the Islamic State is on the run, about to be crushed by American forces once and for all. But New York Times foreign correspondent J.B. Collins tells the President he's dead wrong. With the Middle East on fire, the Israeli Prime Minister dead, the uh, Amman in ruins, the journalist, he fears a catastrophic attack inside the United States. Well, that is the storyline as it begins in Without Warning. Joel Rosenberg's long-anticipated conclusion to the best-selling series. This is the third and final installation of this particular series, the J.B. Collins series, and he takes current events, as is typically the case, and weaves a heart-pounding thriller throughout, making you think seriously about terrorism, international relations, Israel, and much, much more. Well, I am delighted to have with us today Joel Rosenberg. He is a New York Times best-selling author of 11 novels and five nonfiction books with more than 3 million copies sold. He and his family currently live in in Israel, and we are delighted to have you back with us. Welcome. Georgine, great to be with you. Thanks for having me back on your program. Absolutely. Well, congratulations on finishing the third in this trilogy. And uh, as expected, it's a great way to end what has been a riveting story in these three volumes. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, you know, when I began writing this new series about the Islamic State, capturing chemical weapons in Syria, and planning a series of genocidal attacks, I actually began researching it and writing it in in 2013. Now, at that time, most people in the United States had never even heard of ISIS. And by January of 2014, uh, President Obama told us that ISIS was not a big deal, not a big threat, was a JV squad. Uh, But, of course, by summer of 2014... ISIS had captured 40% of Iraq, was beginning an actual genocide against Christians, against uh, Shia Muslims and others in Iraq and Syria, and it had just become, you know, just blew up into this huge thing. So I, I, was, I was writing a novel-based uh, series based on the idea that I thought ISIS was going to become a major deal, and I was just stunned to, to hear President Obama at that time say, no, don't worry, We're, it's, not a, it's not serious. And I, I, I can't explain how he, can have, he could have had that much access mm. to intelligence and misread the situation that badly. Mm. Now, you're not claiming to be clairvoyant, but you base what you write on what you know to be uh, the case in the Middle East, how our leaders here have, uh, have been approaching this subject, uh, because what, what has become a pattern of sort of uncanny ability to reflect what's happening in the day, even things that you've written months before it was actually published and available to the public, tends to, uh, to come to pass. Um, how is it that you are able to anticipate what's going to happen? Uh, and again, it, we're not talking about your being clairvoyant, but you have a, a right. tremendous amount no. of insight. 
No, and in fact, in this one, without warning, I, I pray to God that I'm not right yes. at all. I'm not trying to predict it. Uh, this is about ISIS um, infiltrating inside the American homeland and, and perpetrating a series of catastrophic terrorist attacks in, in nine different American cities almost simultaneously. So, no, not predicting it, not clairvoyant. But there's a simple reason, Georgine, that I understood it and saw it coming and in, in some one degree or another, and the president didn't. I read what the ISIS leaders were saying, and I believed them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he didn't believe them. And, it, you know, I, yes, I had done a lot of research about this. I had sat down with two former directors of the Central Intelligence Agency, a Democrat, Jim Woolsey, who served under uh, President Clinton, and uh, and Porter Goss, who was is is a Republican and um, and served with President George W. Bush, I met with a former head of Mossad, Israel's version of the CIA. I even met with the Prime Minister of Jordan and the Foreign Minister of Jordan because I wanted a Muslim perspective on this Sunni Muslim threat and. So, but but none of they, they none of them gave me classified information. But I, I what I'm trying to do is take um, is is study a threat and then try to imagine a worst case scenario. What if what they say they want to do? What if they did it? Mm-hmm. What if, and that's I, I usually write my novels based on um, that 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 concept that what if question. What if their vision of what they want to accomplish? What if they could actually start doing it? And our leaders, our leaders were sort of blindsided by it because they didn't take it seriously. And and that's really a theme, Georgina, of my novels. To misunderstand the nature and threat of evil is to risk being blindsided by it. Yeah, and uh, what you also flesh out is the cost that would be exacted if, in fact, we continue with our either blindness, unwillingness to misunderstand, to apply political correctness where it does not belong. And there's a significant cost that would be exacted if, in fact, those who oppose us were successful. Oh, it's an enormous cost. If you if you go back to December 7th, 1941, America was blindsided by an evil in, in, the, in the case uh, was Imperial Japan. We just didn't understand what the emperor of Japan wanted, what he believed, and what he was going to try to accomplish. So we didn't. So we were blindsided on, uh, you know, at Pearl Harbor by an evil we didn't understand. Nine Eleven, you know, there was plenty of evidence of what um, Osama bin Laden was saying. He had declared war on us. He had already tried to attack the World Trade Center a few years earlier. But we just didn't believe that he was so evil and that the people following him would turn missiles into airplanes, I'm sorry, airplanes into missiles. So we were blindsided. It's not that it wasn't possible to imagine. It's just we didn't because we didn't, we just didn't believe them. And I'm not saying that every terror group, every evil person in the world is going to accomplish what they say. But But one of the problems we face in our world today is that too many in Washington have a sort of modern, sophisticated, elitist view that evil doesn't exist and that bad guys don't mean what they say. They're just, you know, they're just trying to make headlines. And I guess I come from the world, a worldview that I do believe what they say. And I try to imagine, okay, what if our leaders don't understand it, misunderstand it? 
don't pay attention or take it seriously and don't act decisively, what could happen? That's how I began to write my first novel in January 2001, which was called The Last Jihad. The first page puts you inside the cockpit of a jet plane hijacked by radical Islamic terrorists coming in on a kamikaze attack mission into an American city. That was nine months before September 11, 2001, just because I'd been studying what the jihadists said, and I thought, I can picture them trying to do this because this is the type of things they say they want to do. One of the things I appreciate about your novels is not only do you paint a picture for us of what it would look like if they succeeded, but you also uh, emphasize the possibility that if we are careful in thinking about and listening to what they're actually saying, it's possible to prevent them from succeeding. Well, that's right. And, and it, this requires, uh, it tra- requires wisdom. It requir- requires people willing to listen uh, to data, to intelligence, study it carefully, and, and, and try. The challenge is you have to get outside of the way you would do something. You know, you have to get into the head of the bad guy and, and, and try to, you know, you listen to what they say, you watch what they're doing, and then you begin to extrapolate and you say, what if they really mean it? What if they really do it? What is their what is their end game, and how then might they try to accomplish their objectives? But this is this gets us to a crazy moment where President Obama used to tell us that the Islamic State is neither Islamic mm. nor a state. Now I'm sorry that sounds like a line written by Saturday Night Live. But it, you know, I'm not saying all Muslims are terrorists. Absolutely not. The vast majority are not. But if you don't go read and study what the Islamic State leaders are saying, what, they, what their worldview is, what they believe theologically, uh, politically, well, no wonder you would be blindsided by how rapidly they recruited people to come help them because uh, Obama just didn't take it seriously. He didn't. It didn't fit his worldview. It didn't fit. uh, It wasn't politically correct. So he decided that it wasn't a serious problem, and he was blindsided. And unfortunately, um, you know, a lot of people died in the process. We're talking about, without warning, Joel Rosenberg's long-anticipated conclusion to the best-selling series. This is the third and final installation in the uh, J.B. Collins series. We're going to take a quick break, but we will return and continue our conversation with Joel Rosenberg. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. We are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, continuing our conversation with Joel Rosenberg. His latest novel, Without Warning, a J.B. Collins novel. In fact, it's the third and final installment in this series. I can hardly wait for the next one because this one was riveting. Uh, by the way, are you planning uh, to continue with a fiction next, or, or do you know where you're going? With, I with do. Your pen? Uh, you're right. This is uh, the last in this series. Uh, I've already started working on another book. Uh, it's a, it's, it is a novel a political thriller, and it, it takes me outside the Middle East, and it takes me to Russia and a plot uh, uh, to attack NATO. So um, no details on that yet, but I am working on it. 
we were talking about how uh, your novels tend to reflect uh, current events in a way that is uncanny. And I uh, was listening to an interview you did some uh, months ago on the 700 Club, and you made reference to uh, King Abdallah uh, from Jordan having read your previous book and a series of <laughs> rather interesting connections that ultimately um, – led to your meeting with him, you and your wife, uh, in his country to talk about the role that Jordan is trying to play in opposing uh, ISIS. Can you give us just a little bit of that story? Because I think it it gives us a glimpse into just how relevant your writing has become. Well, I'd be happy to, Georgine. It was so fascinating. So, uh, as I described, this is a novel series about uh, ISIS capturing chemical weapons in Syria and planning these genocidal attacks against the United States in this novel, but against Israel and Jordan in the previous novels. Well, last year, President, or I'm sorry, King Abdullah uh, came from Jordan to Washington, and he was scheduled to meet with President Obama. Uh, unfortunately, for reasons I can't understand, hmm. President Obama canceled his meeting with the king after the king had already arrived in Washington and decided and announced that he was just too busy. So I was, I was infuriated. I just couldn't believe that, that the president would snub our most faithful Sunni Arab ally who was fighting ISIS. I just, it made no sense. So I, I went on the 700 club and I, I, I sort of went off and I said, I don't understand this. This doesn't make any sense. The president should be honoring the king and so forth. Well, because the king didn't have that meeting with the president, he had a little time on his hands, and one of his advisors had just read the previous novel, uh, The First Hostage, and gave it to the king and said, you have to read this. And he said, why? Why do I have to read this? He said, because you're in it. He said, what do you mean I'm in it? It looks like a novel. It is a novel, but you're a named character in the book. So he actually had a little time, so he read the novel in two days while in Washington. And rather than banning me from the kingdom, since the novel in part is about the attempted assassination of him and overthrow, you know, attempted overthrow of his kingdom, he got intrigued with it and invited Lynn and I, my wife and I, to come visit for five days in Jordan. We had uh, three meetings with the king, including a lunch with him. We, it closed with a, a two-and-a-half-hour dinner at his private palace with him. It was so interesting. Uh, met with a lot of generals uh, who are – and the basic message was, this is what we're doing to make sure your books never come true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it was – and I brought him a copy of the first in the series. He had only read the second in the series. And I showed him – uh, while we were having lunch in the palace, that um, it was so surreal. Uh, I said, the first sentence of the first page, Your Majesty, reads, I had never met a king before. That's how the series begins. And he pulled out a pen and says, well, you have now. <laughs> and he signed it. And uh, so he's read both of the first two. And we just sent him uh, the last in the in the series, which I understand he was waiting to find out how it was all going to come together. So, you know, I, I'm thrilled, Georgine, that people all over the country, all over the world, are reading these novels. Uh, the current one is number six on the New York Times list. But to have a Muslim king who is engaged in actively in a fight against ISIS, 
uh, actually read the series has been very, very special. Yeah, I, I absolutely. One of the questions that uh, your latest edition, Without Warning, raises is whether or not uh, presidents of the United States, in this case, uh, flash forward to 21st century president uh, Donald Trump, whether presidents can do a better job. Uh, you you make the point that strengthening our alliance with Jordan and Egypt, in fact, President Trump met with al-Sisi earlier today. Right. Uh, they're fighting radicals. They're challenging Muslim leaders. Um, your thoughts on our relationship under this current administration and whether or not you're optimistic that at least this administration gets it, our, our national security team gets it. Yeah, I am encouraged. I have to say, I was not a fan of of, of candidate Donald Trump, um, but now that he's president, um, I, I, as an evangelical Christian, it's sort of like marriage. Like I wasn't sure this was a marriage that should happen, but now that it has happened, obviously I want it to succeed. I want the president to do a good job. I am encouraged. First of all, he's the only president in American history actually using the term radical Islamic terrorism. He's calling it what it is. I think he should give a full speech on this, by the way, and really define what that term means, Mm -hmm. since no American has ever heard a president say it. So that's one thing. Two, he has put it in excellent national security team. I mean, first of all, uh, Vice President Mike Pence uh, is is so strong, strong in the United States, strong for Israel. Um, I know him and his wife personally. In fact, they've been fans of the books, and, I've, and that's been fun. Um, I, I actually brought him two copies a few weeks ago over to the West Wing, and we had some time together. But General Mattis now at the, at, at, at the Pentagon and all these others, these are strong, experienced, um, smart people. So I'm encouraged. And I'm watching the President of the United States reach out not just to Israel, which I'm very happy about, but also, as you said, he's got the, the President of Egypt was here today. You know, the President of the United States, President Obama, never invited uh, Egyptian President el-Sisi ever to come visit him at the White House. I mean, that's insane. Egypt is, an, is a country that is our ally in the fight against radical terrorism, but it's also a country that needs a good, strong relationship with us because it is, it is under siege uh, by terrorists. Uh, on Wednesday, um, President, uh, President Trump will meet with King Abdullah at the White House. And previously, in recent weeks, he has met with the, um, the crown, or deputy crown prince of Saudi Arabia, the prime minister of Iraq. The point is, he is not only strengthening the U.S.-Israel relationship, he's also personally strengthening our alliances with Muslim countries that are our friends but were not well treated in the previous administration. I think that's smart, and I hope that he builds on that. Yeah, that is uh, definitely encouraging. Um, do you have any idea how many sleeper cells are currently in the country, or do we know um, the the magnitude of of that phenomenon in our country? You make reference to that fact in the book uh, without warning, and they come to full fruition in an, a, a, terror, a, ta- a catastrophic terror attack inside the American homeland in the book. Right. Well, no, uh, you know, by definition, none of us know uh, uh, how many there would be. But interestingly enough, uh, I just learned from a a top uh, U.S. official a couple weeks ago that I had a meeting with. He told me that last year, 37 um, uh, people in the United States were arrested for being allegedly involved in ISIS plots. 37. Now, that's three a month. 
that were arrested um, planning ISIS attacks inside the United States. I don't think most Americans know that number, mm-hmm. and I think that's something the president should say in a major address on this topic. That the reason we haven't had more Orlando attacks, San Bernardino attacks, Boston attacks, and then now you can add Paris and uh, St. Petersburg, and you know the fact that we haven't had more of it is because we're doing a good job with our law enforcement and intelligence arresting these people. But imagine 37 attacks. What if they had happened last year? What if one or two more had happened? So that tells you the magnitude of the threat. It's the fact that they ha- aren't happening every day isn't because ISIS isn't trying. They're here. They're active. They're trying. So far, we've been very fortunate because of the wonderful, heroic men and women who serve in our intelligence and law enforcement systems are doing a great job. But we can't let up, and we have to stay on offense. We have to guard ourselves. And then you have this insane series of, uh, of federal court judges, Washington State, uh, as you know, mm-hmm. uh, Hawaii and Maryland, who are telling the commander-in-chief, no, no, you can't put an executive order to improve our national security, our vetting procedures uh, with these six countries that are completely consumed by terrorism. I mean, that's just an insane worldview that doesn't, that misunderstands the nature and threat of evil. And I just hope that those uh, federal judges are overruled because we've got to protect ourselves. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation with Joel Rosenberg. His latest book, Without Warning, the third in the J.B. Collins series. This is the uh, the final installment uh, of that series. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the book Without Warning, Joel C. Rosenberg's uh, long-anticipated conclusion to the best-selling series, the J.B. Collins uh, series. Uh, it takes uh, current events, weaves a heart-pounding thriller throughout, makes you think seriously about terrorism, international relations, Israel, our leaders, and so on. It's a complex political theory, uh, thriller. rather. It mirrors current uh, global events and a fascinating read. It's entertaining, it's gripping, but it also uh, causes us to think perhaps more soberly and seriously about the events of our day. Now, one of the the themes in the book uh, and really throughout the series is this notion of terrorism as we know it today, this apocalyptic terrorist genocide uh, that that sees the future um, as something that can be brought about by a series of violent uh, attacks, uh, violent events. Talk a little bit about the nature of the threat, which in the book, uh, the president doesn't understand. And historically, right here in the country, we fail to fully appreciate. Well, that's right. So, so this is important, and this is the type of thing that I would, you know, I think the president should lay out for the country, but let me give you the short version. So let's start off with the premise that there's been an enormous amount of public polling done in the Muslim world over the last 16 or 17 years since 9-11. So we know now, based on all the data, that about 90% of Muslims uh, worldwide uh, do not support terrorism. They don't support violence. That's good. That means the vast majority of Muslims, uh, by every evidence, is not a threat. In fact, our our allies, because who's dying most because of radical Islamic terrorism? It's Muslims Mm -hmm. in Iraq, in Syria, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan. uh, It's Muslims who are dying most. Okay, so that's the first thing. The vast majority of Muslims are not a threat. However, 
The data also show that between 7 and 10% of Muslims worldwide do support suicide bombings against civilians. They do support uh, the extreme violence and the beheadings and so forth of the Islamic State. This is a problem because while the vast majority don't, you know, if you say 10% in a world of 1.6 billion Muslims, that's 160 million people. Mm -hmm. That's half the population of the United States. If they were in their own country, the Islamic Republic of Radicalstan, for example, they would be the ninth largest country in the world, larger than Russia. So while percentage-wise, this is a, a small threat, it's not small in numbers. And while not every radical Muslim will actually personally engage in violence, him or herself, this is the pool from which the you know, terrorist organizations and so forth are recruiting members and, 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 and raising money. So it's important for people to understand um, that we need to mobilize the 90% to help us against the 10%. We don't want to offend and radicalize and, and, and impugn the hearts and motives and faith of the 90%. We can disagree with them theologically, as I would as an, as an evangelical, but we need their help. In this, we want the help of King Abdullah and President El Sisi and so forth. But here's one, maybe two other quick points. Radical Islam is something where people are willing to use violence to accomplish their religious and political objectives. In other words, you know, they'll blow up, uh, you know, an American embassy because they want Americans to leave Saudi Arabia or they want us to leave, you know, the Middle East of something. Okay, that's bad. But apocalyptic Islam is much worse. Apocalyptic Islam is the view that um, the leaders of ISIS and the leaders of Iran, they want not simply to drive us out of the region. They want to bring about the end of the world as we know it. They believe that if you launch genocidal attacks against, quote, infidels, unquote, that, that somehow you can hasten the coming of the Islamic Messiah and establish a global Islamic kingdom, which they call the caliphate. Now that's something even, you know, you think radical Islam is bad. Apocalyptic Islam is literally trying to bring about the end of the world and genocide. That is what the leaders of ISIS believe. That's what the leaders of Iran believe. And that's what our leaders have to both understand uh, by reading and studying what these leaders are saying, and understand the implications of just how dangerous that is. That's not just radical, that's apocalyptic, and we have to understand it. That's a big theme uh, in this new series, including Without Warning. Now, in the book Without Warning, there's a catastrophic terror attack inside the American homeland. How probable is it that they could find a way to penetrate the White House using conventional tactics, unconventional weapons? I, I can't. Well, it's a good question, Georgine. I can't speak to to probable. That's a that's a standard. I'm not sure I can get to. But I I would say again, going back to the idea that 37 people were arrested in the United States already last year trying to pull off big attacks, uh, it tells me that it's possible. In fact, we know from the statements of ISIS leaders in the last 12 to 18 months that they're calling on people to launch catastrophic attacks in the United States. Now, could they use chemical weapons? 
I hope not, you know. I, uh, but, I, you know, I, I don't know. We've got a lot of soft targets. It's one yeah. thing to attack the White House or the Capitol. That's, those are at least are secure. But, but, you know, the problem is they may attack a mall. They may attack a hotel. They could attack, you know, a, a school or, or school buses. Or There's all kinds of, uh, you know, if they began to just blow up school buses all over the country, um, you know, or blow up malls. I mean, imagine four or five or six events like that in a few-day period. There'd be, there'd be panic in this country. And this is the challenge, and that's why we have to fight and win over there, over in the Middle East, um, as well as protect our borders here. You can't just play defense. You have to go on offense and win uh, working with your allies, working with Muslim allies. Um, Otherwise, you're going to give them safe havens to prepare and launch their attacks inside the homeland, and that is – you know, I you know right now it's fiction, but God forbid it come true. Uh, I, I just wanted to go back for just a moment to uh, uh, the King Abdullah of Jordan and uh, Egyptian President Al Sisi. Um, both have um, the Islamic world in general has been very reticent to define uh, radical Islam. Uh, that's changing somewhat. These two are the first to uh, to be somewhat critical of the internal problem, um, which I think also emphasizes our need to support. Uh, those kinds of leaders who are recognizing that we need to take some uh, some ownership and and some leadership in trying to uh, reform. Well, they're they're not the first or, or even the only, but they're certainly the the leaders uh, within the Muslim world that are taking uh, you know taking bold steps both in what they say as they attack the theology of the radicals. I mean, they're actually as Muslims, they're saying. Uh, that, that the radicals are wrong, that they're they're heretics, that they're uh, King uh, Abdullah uses a term in Arabic called Khawarij, which means outlaws of Islam. So they're really attacking the 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 uh, theological and intellectual underpinnings of the radical movement. That's important. But they're also using military force. They're using hard force against terrorists. Uh, the Jordanians and the Egyptians are doing that. There are others. The Moroccans are good on this. Uh, the Saudis have really changed quite a bit. They're still, I know a lot of people still have deep uh, anxiety about them because 15 of the 19 hijackers on 9-11 were Saudis. But the, the, the Saudi government didn't sanction that, and the Saudis have been working with us um, more, effectively, more effectively than most Americans realize to fight terrorism. Uh, I'm not saying everything is all in, all in good in Saudi Arabia, but they want to be a better ally, and they've been doing there, – there, there's real evidence of it. So those are just a few examples, um, but I think it's true that too seldom do we hear Muslim leaders – you know, really speaking out against uh, fellow Muslims who are engaged in horrific, savage crimes. But uh, they're out there. I'm having the good fortune of getting to meet some of them. And, um, and I, think I think President Obama uh, really was a poor leader at, at, at several different levels. He didn't make common cause with these folks and work together as effectively as one would want. And I think, you know, for those who are critical of President Trump, 
at least you have to give him credit that he, you know, we're seeing real progress in the war against uh, ISIS uh, right now. And the next big topic, of course, is Iran. How do we keep them from getting nuclear weapons? Because if Iran gets nuclear weapons and not just nuclear technology, they could they could kill millions where ISIS is killing tens of thousands. We're talking with Joel Rosenberg, his latest book, the uh, third in a series of uh, novels, uh, J.B. Collins novels, Without Warning. We're going to take a quick break. We'll continue our conversation, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Joel Rosenberg, his latest novel, Without Warning. It's the third in the trilogy of J.B. Collins' series. Uh, you mentioned just a moment ago Iran, and I don't want to get too far afield, but uh, North Korea and Iran are working together uh, to develop nuclear weapons. Talk a little bit about that relationship. If you add ISIS to that, the kind of threat uh, that that, uh, that uh, triumvirate, if you will, poses. Yeah. Well, it's, it's very dangerous. Uh, actually, Iran and ISIS hate each other. ISIS is a Sunni apocalyptic cult, and, Iran and Iran's leaders are a Shia uh, apocalyptic cult. So they hate each other. But, but ironically and, 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 and dangerously, Iran's leadership is working closely uh, with the North Koreans uh, on missile, long-range missile development. And, of course, North Korea has already um, tested five uh, nuclear weapons, and they keep, you know, they keep improving their design. Now, if those test results are being sold to Iran, imagine how dangerous that is, where you know, even if Iran isn't doing their own testing, if they're getting the direct data from North Korea, and I can't say that we know that they are, but they're working so closely with North Korea, that's possible. Iran could be much farther down the road to building nuclear weapons than we realize if, if North Korea is essentially acting as a testing ground, as the research and development lab. And remember, it was President Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton, and the liberals that ran the administration then that told us in the 1990s that they'd struck a deal with North Korea, don't worry, we're, they're, you know, they're never going to get nuclear weapons, it's all good now. Well, here we are, they've tested five nuclear weapons, and they're becoming a nuclear-armed country. And that's the problem with the, you know, the crazy Iran nuclear deal that President Obama cut. That we were told it's going to be wonderful, don't worry, you don't have to fear anymore. But it's, we're heading on the same track, the same dangerous track as we did in North Korea. It just, you know, a president who served for four or eight years can just sort of kick the can up the road and tell us that it's all good, when in fact, 5, 10, 15 years down the road, suddenly bad guys have weapons of mass destruction. And it's incredibly dangerous, uh, both Iran and North Korea. And uh, this administration is going to have to figure out how to handle it. Now, the novel we're talking about, Without Warning, um, you address leaders who won't take the threat seriously. Uh, Then the remainder of the book is about the hunt, working with our uh, allies. Without giving away too much of the story, how does that that play out in a work of fiction, and how do you see that playing out in real life? Yeah, well, that's tough to say without giving away too much of that novel. (laughs) I think, uh, let's just say that... uh, uh, we need we need leaders that that that, that really uh, understand how dangerous these these forces are. 
Look, one, does, one doesn't have to be a radical Muslim to endanger us. The North Koreans aren't Muslims, uh, right? And they're, they're incredibly dangerous. In fact, they're, they're trying to develop not just nuclear weapons, but they're trying to develop what's called EMP bombs, mm. where if they fired a missile over America and a nuclear detonation happened up in the atmosphere over Chicago, say, they could fry the entire electronic circuitry of the United States and within weeks or months, we would have no food, no refrigeration, no ability to talk to each other, no ability to get cash out of ATM machines. And it would bring life to a standstill, and people would die. That's, that's what's being developed right now. And, you know, just, this is not in the novel, but I'll just tell you, one of the things we need in the United States is ballistic missile defenses. Mm-hmm. We might not be able to stop uh, North Korea and Iran from building these systems, but we have to be able to shoot them down. Uh, Israel has developed um, uh, rocket defenses and long-range missile defenses. We're prepared, but the United States isn't. The United States actually doesn't have the ability to stop an intercontinental ballistic missile. I mean, we technologically do, but no president has actually put the money to build a system to protect us. And that's just one example of something that isn't in my novel series, this particular series, but I think it's the type of thing this president ought to do because, in the end, the most important thing that any government does is protect its citizens. Absolutely. Well, let me just ask you, uh, what should a U.S. strategy look like? Um, we've, we have things unfinished in Iraq. Um, uh, the status of force agreement might need some adjustment. What do you think a U.S. strategy should look like from our vantage point today looking forward? Well, I was glad to see uh, President Trump meeting with the uh, Iraqi Prime Minister um, Haydar, uh, Haydar Abadi. I say, look, because here's the thing. I believe that, that most likely by the end of 2017, the United States and our coalition will have liberated again uh, the nation of Iraq, in this case from the ISIS uh, horror. That's good. And then we need to sign a new status of forces agreement with Iraq. And we need to position forces there so there's no vacuum that some future group uh, surges into. You know, when President Obama pulled all of our forces out of Iraq in 2011, it created a vacuum into which ISIS was formed and it came surging across. We cannot let that vacuum happen again, and so it's incumbent on President Trump not just to win Iraq back and cut the caliphate in half, that's good, but to make sure that we've got a force there uh, to help uh, Iraq be strong and and protected, because it protects us. Meanwhile, we do need to strengthen our alliances with the Sunni Arab world, like the Egyptians, like the Jordanians and others. We need to uh, work together on um, uh, containing Iran and figuring out ways. I think we need to reimpose sanctions on Iran, um, but we also have to make sure that we uh, capture and kill Iranian terrorists that are spreading out in Yemen and Syria and elsewhere. Now, how you handle Syria, we don't have enough time on your show to <laughs> figure that all out right now. It's a hornet's nest, but we've got to make sure that we don't allow the Russians and the Iranians to take full control of Syria. That would be an, If Iran takes control of Syria, we, then Israel is in grave danger. And as you know, my wife and kids and I live in Israel now. Yes. And so the idea of having Iran on our border is a nightmare scenario worse than one I've ever written about as a novel. Maybe I have to do that in the future. Um, so the United States needs to make sure 
that Iran doesn't end up being the winner in Syria. We've got a lot of challenges, but I'll tell you another one. Uh, we've got to keep an eye on Vladimir Putin and Russia. Uh, I think he is a very dangerous force. He's already invaded uh, Georgia. He's invaded uh, Ukraine. He's seized Crimea. He's invaded or you know is operating militarily in Syria, and I think he has his eyes on expanding Russian territory, and that's a problem. NATO's very divided. Uh, our administration is sending mixed signals on NATO, so that's a future problem. It also happens to be the next novel I'm working on, but that's that's next year's discussion. <laughs> Which we will most definitely have. <laughs> Happy to do it. Yeah. yeah, once again, the title of the uh, the novel, Without Warning, a J.B. Collins novel, is the third in the series, the final uh, installment uh, in that series, and we look forward to uh, what you offer next. Um, I, I would agree with you. We hope that this is not a prophetic book, that these events do not occur as they're uh, outlined so skillfully in the book, but it gives us uh, certainly some things to think about and some things to press our leaders to consider moving forward. Joel Rosenberg, thank you so much for joining us. Well, great to be with you. And let me just say, it is the third in the series, but I wrote it in such a way that if you just pick up without warning and you haven't read the others, you'll get it. You don't. I mean, I'd love you to go back and read the other two, but people can just pick this one up and sort of get into the story right from the for, right from the first page. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. So, but you're, I, I will warn you as well that you're going to want to go back and read the other two, having started with the third. Well, hey, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Georgine. Bye-bye. Thank you. Again, Joel Rosenberg, author of uh, Without Warning, a J.B. Collins novel, the third in the series. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a break here in just a few moments. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. As you know, we have been uh, focusing on Christian education in the Portland metro area. And as you've heard, there are some remarkable schools in our community. These are Christian schools who not only want to provide the kind of academic rigor that parents are looking for, but from a Christian, a biblical worldview, so that these young people are equipped not just for entering the public marketplace as professionals or parents or whatever role they choose to take, but that they are equipped for this life and the life to come. Well, I'm delighted that uh, we've extended for the next couple of days uh, our effort, and today we're going to be shining a spotlight on Pilgrim Lutheran School, a Christian school, where they are equipping children for life, for this life and for the life to come. Joining us to do that is Carol Ewing. She's a preschool teacher, and Andrea Gerke. She's a youth director and the director of Christian education at uh, Pilgrim Lutheran Church. Welcome to both of you. We are honored to have you here and to talk about Pilgrim Lutheran Christian School. Thank you for inviting us. Well, let me just invite uh, one of you to begin to give us just a brief overview of uh, Pilgrim Lutheran Christian School. Each one of these Christian schools has kind of a unique approach, so tell us about yours. Well, um, at our school, we've been involved about 30-plus years in um, educating children. It started out as preschool and kindergarten, and then grew from there, and now we um, go all the way up to eighth grade. Uh, We saw a need in the community for good, sound Christian education, and by that we mean involving Christ in all aspects of the child's life, Mm -hmm. academic, social, emotional. Um, We also involve the families a lot, so it's a great community of um, of people in, involved in the educating of children. 
Well, that is such a beautiful portrait of what I think many families are looking for when they're thinking about their children's education so that they not only are prepared academically, but they are prepared for life and uh, have a, a walk with the Lord that will, will serve them well throughout their adult life. Um, now, I know that every school depends largely on the uh, the faculty and the staff. Tell us a little bit about your, your staff and their priorities and their approach to teaching students. Well, I would say our staff here are incredibly invested, um, of course, in the education, but also in the children. And when I think about the kids who are here now um, and the kids who have graduated and, and moved on to high school and college, um, that those relationships are key in a child's success, both in the school but also in the world. And so I get to tell parents that a lot. I said, you know, the, the one of the great benefits that you see here, they're interested in your kid as, as your child as a whole, but mm-hmm. especially the love that they have for your for your child. And that just I think gives a lot of confidence in and you know where a child spends the bulk of his time is in the classroom. So they are backing up what parents are doing on the yeah, home front. Absolutely. I so love that Pilgrim Lutheran Christian School is a partnership with the church and that's such a blessing to families. At Pilgrim Lutheran Christian School you're going to find a comprehensive curriculum in a caring Christ-centered community, preparing kids to be compassionate, responsible leaders. Uh, The focus is on body, mind, and spirit, and how desperately we need that kind of an approach to education where parents uh, and their contribution is honored and um, highly regarded and students are seen as individuals. Uh, I know that at, at Pilgrim Lutheran Christian School, you really celebrate your children as gifts from God and that each of them is unique in your approach. Absolutely. When we look at our children in our classroom, um, we know that that God made them exactly the way that they are, and we get to join in that journey with them and helping them reach their full potential, wherever that may be. They're at every different level, at every different stage of their life, and it's such a joy to be able to see them go forward as they learn and they grow and they shine and exceed um, even our own expectations of what they of what God created them mm-hmm. to be, and that's just that's a privilege that we get to have here at our school. I know one of the ways that you're able to accomplish that is uh, by the fact that there are smaller class sizes, and that's important to parents as well. Absolutely, yeah. we um, have a great ratio in preschool; it's um, one to eight, and then in the uh, lower. We average about 15 students per teacher, um, so that gives us a great opportunity to be able to um, focus on each child and where they are academically and socially and spiritually. Now, at Pilgrim Lutheran Christian School, you are noted for having high test scores. You also have extracurricular activities. And I think a lot of uh, families, when they're thinking about Christian education, they think, well, maybe we're going to have to give up some aspects, some elements that we enjoyed in public school. But you offer a, a, a significant array of extracurricular activities. The music department here, which is also led by uh, Carol Ewing, uh, they get to do handbells and, and choir and hand chimes and something that... Um, is definitely added to, you know, just the musical programs that we have, but also the sports and um, basketball, volleyball, track, soccer. So kids get a chance to uh, participate in each of those different activities. 
Now, at Pilgrim Lutheran Christian School, let's talk about what makes Pilgrim Lutheran a Christian environment. I think, um, you know, we talked about the high test scores and, and uh, the kind of uh, academic approach that you have. But let's talk about what makes Pilgrim Lutheran a Christian school as opposed to just a school. Well, a lot of times people will ask us what we have um, as far as religious education. And we, while we do have um, a curriculum where we study the Bible, we study uh, the life of Christ, um, Jesus is kind of in our classroom all throughout the day. So we teach how Jesus would want us to be kind. We teach how Jesus would want us to be a part of the community. Um, we, we talk about Christ in the sciences, Christ in the arts, Christ in math. So it's integrated in our entire day. We also give them plenty of opportunities to reach out into the community and into the world with offering and service projects. So it's, it's like God is a daily part of every, every hour of our day and not just 30 minutes of a class time. Uh, Andrea, did you want to add to that? Well, I was just going to say, yeah, it's, it's, it's not just a, a class that you take that you're getting a grade for, but it's, it's how you actually apply that to your life. So mm-hmm. with, with any education subject, you're going to be looking at, you know, the academia of it. But when it comes to your, your, your faith walk and your Christian living, it's going to be how you apply that. So, we, you know, we get the joy of seeing kids work together on offering projects. Like right now we're doing nothing but nets and raising money for mosquito nets um, to help fight malaria <laughs> from the old, from the oldest kids in eighth grade and their chapel buddies down to preschool threes and fours. And they get to, to kind of experience that together and do it together. And, you know, if, if you're not applying it in your faith walk, then it's, then it's just another subject. So mm-hmm. we get the opportunity to really talk about that and how we can serve globally and we can serve locally. And hopefully that these kids will take that then out once they leave Pilgrim into their schools and into their families and their neighborhoods. Well, I so appreciate the the contribution that Pilgrim Lutheran Christian School has made over the years and continues to make equipping children for life, uh, students for this life and uh, eternal life to come. I I just want to say thank you for the dedication that both of you um, have exhibited in your role at Pilgrim Lutheran Christian School for the staff and teachers there and for the tremendous blessing that you are to our community. I want to encourage our listeners, if you'd like to learn more about Pilgrim Lutheran Christian School, and I hope you will, you can go to the website pilgrimbeaverton.com uh, for more information. They're located on Hall Boulevard in Beaverton. And for listeners who are interested in learning more, maybe coming out to the school and, and speaking with some, what's the best way for them to, uh, to arrange something like that? You can call our school office and ask for Wendy Rigoni. She's our marketing director. She would be glad to give you a tour and give you any information that you would like. Great. Uh, That telephone number, by the way, 503-644-8697. You can also go to our webpage, listenersavings.com. You can find a link to Pilgrim Lutheran Christian School if you're in the Beaverton area. Although I have found that geography doesn't often limit people when they're looking for a good, solid Christian school. So if you are in the area, let me encourage you to check out Pilgrim Lutheran Christian School. They're making a difference in young people's lives. They're partnering with families. And we are honored to uh, to talk with you today. And for uh, you to be a part of the KPDQ family. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. God bless you both. Again, Pilgrim Lutheran Christian School. You can find them at pilgrimbeaverton.com. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back. Final segment of the, uh, what is this, Tuesday? The Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Second day of spring break for our neighbors to the north. Well, I wanted to remind you that uh, an ex-atheist, Lee Strobel, his movie is coming out this weekend. The Case for Christ, the film for nonbelievers, they're going to see the real evidence for God, for Jesus. That's what the reviewers are saying in the Christian Post. Well, the author, Lee Strobel, whose uh, story it is, a former atheist and journalist who tried to prove that Jesus did not resurrect from the dead, said that nonbelievers who see the upcoming movie, The Case for Christ, uh, will witness real evidence for God. In fact, it was the real evidence that convinced him to go from the atheist category to a follower of Christ. He says, we felt like there's a lot of people who are curious about faith and wonder whether there's any real evidence that God exists and that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And we thought, you know, if uh, if uh, if it can help people come to some resolution of that or begin their own investigation, then it's worth a kind of um, putting ourselves out there in this way, Strobel said in an interview with Newsmax TV. Well, Strobel, whose uh, best-selling book uh, by the same name chronicles his journey from an atheist trying to disprove the evidence for Christ to becoming a Christian himself, admitted that it's um, disconcerting to see the raw story portrayed on the big screen. I mean, it's your life uh, unfolding. And he promised that besides a story about a marriage, a love story about a father-son, audiences are also going to be drawn into the evidence. The now Christian author struggled at the uh, at the time to accept his wife's conversion to Christianity. This is such a common story. The wife comes to faith, the husband follows uh, after, and he wanted to use his journalistic and legal training to try to investigate and disprove who Jesus claimed to be. But his effort collapsed after he found real evidence for Christ. Well, the evidence of history, I think, points powerfully and persuasively toward the conclusion that the resurrection is an actual historic event. Uh, Strobel said in that same Newsmax interview. So I became convinced that it's true. I ended up becoming a Christian and our lives changed from there. Well, Strobel has been busy promoting The Case for Christ, the movie after the best-selling book, which opens in theaters on the 7th. And last week, he told the Daily Herald in another interview that audiences will see exactly how the former Chicago Tribune reporter moved away from skepticism and toward faith. What I love about the film is that it doesn't preach, yet the message of Jesus is woven into uh, the story in a creative and very compelling way, he said. He praised the quality of the filmmaking as well, and he argued that it stands uh, out from other Christian-based movies. Um, He says he was uh, impressed with the production quality, the acting, editing, everything. And it was quite an education for us because we'd never been part of a movie before. We feel it uh, really represents our uh, story well. Well, similarly, he told Newsmax in his uh, latest interview, a lot of faith-based films tend to be, if we're honest, a little cringeworthy, a little cheesy. Well, I think there are some examples where that's not the case, but I think you know the point he's making. He went on to say that uh, there's none of that in this movie. This is a movie that is so well done from a production standpoint, the acting, the script, that we really are convinced that Christians will go to it. Uh, They'll be encouraged. Lee and Leslie Strobel uh, were also interviewed last month by Pastor Greg Laurie of Harvest Christian Fellowship in California, who said that parts of the movie brought him to tears. So it is a movie that will certainly move believers, but is designed to compel those who uh, do not believe in the claims of Christ to consider the evidence. And that very evidence convinced the uh, atheist skeptic uh, to become a follower of Christ. So it's uh, it's interesting. By the way, you can find out more at thecaseforchrist.com. Uh, Lee Strobel's award-winning, best-selling book that uh, the feature film is based on. And we're going to try to arrange an interview uh, sometime this week on the movie as well. So 
Uh, looking forward to uh, that. Kathy Lee Gifford says this, I am so glad that Lee's powerful moving story has finally been made into a film that is equally compelling. It is honest and real, and I highly recommend it. David Limbaugh, author of Jesus on Trial and The True Jesus, and by the way, we're working on an interview with him for his latest book, The True Jesus, says of the movie, it was so good that I was sorry when it was over. Just awesome from beginning to end. Greg Laurie, who's interviewing uh, the Strobel's um, uh, in, uh, shortly says this is one of the most powerful evangelistic movies I've ever seen. It connects on every level, logically and emotionally. And finally, Sheila Walsh says of the movie, she's also a best-selling author and singer. You might recall, she says this is a must-see movie. If you are a follower of Christ, it will strengthen your faith. If you are a skeptic, it will address your questions. If you are an atheist, it will meet you where you are and invite you to take another look. So for that reason alone, it's a great opportunity not only to enjoy it as a follower of Christ, but to encourage others who are not uh, to consider seeing it with you uh, and then uh, being prepared for a discussion afterward. I know that can seem somewhat um, intimidating, but you don't have to have all the answers. You just have to be able to articulate your testimony, what your relationship with Christ has meant to you, and uh, you can rely on the Holy Spirit to continue to do his work in the heart of the skeptic from that point forward. But inviting someone to come is a great step forward in uh, introducing them to the one who's transformed those who know him has transformed our lives. So that's coming up on April the 7th. And what is that? Is that this Saturday or this Friday? What's the 7th? Friday opens in theaters on Friday. Also, I noted that John Stone Street, he's an author and uh, uh, a, a blogger, Christian uh, blog columnist. Uh, he pointed out that uh, there was a one night showing of a powerful documentary, which I'm guessing you can find in other places as well. Uh, and it's, uh, Uh, puts a face on a deadly epidemic. He writes that if you saw people dying all around you from a plague you didn't understand and couldn't control, what would you do? Well, for Samaritan's Purse staff members faced with the outbreak of the deadly Ebola virus in Liberia, that wasn't a hypothetical question. Their answer, because of God's love and the courage that love gave them, was to join Christians throughout the world who ran toward the plague, not from it. Uh, To fully understand the power of that decision, Uh, We need to take a step back. Ebola, of course, you'll recall, was a terrifying and still is a terrifying disease. It causes extreme pain, fever, terrible bouts of diarrhea and vomiting, and until effective treatments were available, was almost always fatal. And because it's uh, transferred uh, by body fluids, even wiping the brow or holding the hand of someone infected uh, means you're susceptible to getting it, too. When this um, disease, this horrible uh, disease broke in Liberia in 2014, Samaritan's Purse and the mission agency SIM uh, stayed in uh, uh, in the fight. Uh, more than 28,000 people came down with the disease in Guinea, in uh, Sierra Leone, in Liberia. The death toll reached 11,000. Uh, and this documentary tells the story of the decisions that were made to be a part of um, this gripping uh, tragedy. Ultimately, it is a redemptive story uh, coming to a theater near you. It's called Facing Darkness, a powerful movie. It was produced by Samaritan's Purse itself, Um, This isn't a fluffy PR film, he points out. It's not. It's an emotionally raw, artfully constructed story of life and death that recently won a top prize at the Heartland Film Festival, has received standing ovations at advanced screenings, including the recent gathering of the National Religious Broadcasters for uh, one night only. It was uh, shown in 900 theaters. Now you'll have to find it by uh, some other uh, means. So uh, let me encourage you to to uh, check that out. Google Facing Darkness and find out where it can be seen at this point forward. I would have mentioned it before. It's one night showing in theaters last Thursday, but was not aware of it 
until just today, but wanted to uh, give you a heads up. If you're looking for a good documentary that is meaningful, that's one to consider again, Facing Darkness. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Jonathan Morrow. He's the author of Welcome to College, A Christ Follower's Guide for the Journey. We're also going to talk with Tim Tuddy. He is uh, with the North Clackamas Christian School. We'll tell you all about it. So I hope you'll join us. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Glenn for producing and engineering portions of the program, also Justin Mansfield for engineering a portion of today's program as well. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.